This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. I was taking a walk with Hudson this morning. We were praying. It's our, it was our prayer walk. And... I was, it was an interesting opportunity to teach him about his position in Christ because we were going through and we've been taking a time in, in our prayer for uh, thanksgiving and declaring the attributes of God and then we go into a confession of our position in Christ and I was explaining to him his position that since he's in Christ, he's actually seated in heavenly places and he's in Christ, therefore since Christ is at the right hand of the Father, he's been brought near to the Father, so therefore when he prays, Pray from that position. That's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. And he said, that makes sense. And he began to pray in the name of Jesus. And for the first time, it was a very marked difference. I began to notice his emphasis and his understanding. And many of you understand what that is. When you finally catch it, it's like, now I know why I'm praying this. And so one of the first prayers he prayed was for you guys. And he prayed, uh, in the name of Jesus... I pray that Daddy's sermon this morning would be the most impacting sermon he's ever given. Now, Hudson doesn't know what he was praying for because he doesn't know what battle I've gone through even for this. In fact, if I was going to give a dedication to, in this message, I should give it to the practicum students who were over at my house on Friday night because I said I've had absolutely zero time this entire week to study. I've had no preparation. Every single moment of this week has been completely taken up and unless I avoid my family over the weekend, I will not have any time over the weekend to prepare a message. But watch, God will have a message. And if there's one thing I know about God is that he's faithful and he's true. And he knows what the body of Christ needs. He knows what I need to fulfill the task that he's assigned me. And so I have a message, and I keep wondering if God actually wants me to give it. This is possibly, this has to rank in the top five most difficult messages I would ever give, but it's not a rebuking message. You don't need to worry about that, at least. It's, it's just the challenging message, because it's dealing with the factors that we struggle with in a church like this. They're really good factors, and I think all of us really enjoy the fact that we are a blended body and denominationally widespread, uh, but we all have agreed on certain things. But when you have a body that has that Pentecostal emphasis in it, as well as the very serious Bible scholarly dimension in it, you can have friction. And historically, those two have been almost at enmity one with the other, if we were just to be blunt about it. You see, one side would want to emphasize in church gatherings the Spirit of God. And is that a bad thing? Of course not. The other side would want to emphasize in the church gatherings the word of God in text. Is that a bad thing? Absolutely not. However, what you'll see at Ellerslie is where we esteem the word of God in text and we esteem the Holy Spirit, our emphasis here is Jesus Christ. The word of God 
is fulfilled and satisfied in the person of Jesus Christ. And the Spirit of God, if he truly has freedom to reign in our midst, is going to be pointing towards one person. Who's that? Jesus Christ. And so as a result, we're a funny body. Because I think most of us are still trying to coordinate around that because we're used to one extreme or the other. Can a Southern Baptist actually exist with a Pentecostal? And most people would say, not on your life. That's why we have such things as denominations. And yet, for those of us in this room, we are committed to saying our rallying point isn't just text and doctrine, and it's not just the Holy Spirit, even though we esteem both and submit to both. It's what they both are serving, which is Jesus Christ. And that's what this message is, the laboring to once again take one side and another side and create a middle uh, center point that will ally us on some of the most challenging of issues. A couple weeks ago, I did a message on tongues and prophecy, which was about as risky as it could get. And I don't know that either side was satisfied. You have the Southern Baptists, and they're just uncomfortable because I brought up tongues. And then you have the Pentecostal, and they're uncomfortable because I didn't emphasize tongues. And I said that's actually not the priority of the Holy Spirit. The priority of the Holy Spirit is a clear message, what I call the second sound, the interpretation, the prophecy. It's that which is understandable. If you're not seeing a clear message of Jesus Christ, if the gospel isn't resonating in people, then the, the first sound actually doesn't have value. And so as a result, I'm always feeling like I'm having to say something that's not going to satisfy either extreme. And I guess in a certain way, that's part of what makes us what we are in this church. I'm not trying to pacify an audience out there. I want to bring glory to Jesus Christ. And once again, there's another message that is challenging. I don't know how else to describe it, but as we go into it or even as we give the title, I think you'll begin to realize what I mean by that. When God says no, a study in the fatherhood of God, one of the things you'll understand about me is I'm a man of faith, and I believe the word of God. I believe what God says, and I am ready to die believing. I'm just, that's one of the gifts I would say I would have. If we're going to talk spiritual gifts, I have a gift of faith. I see it, I believe it, and you cannot move me from that. And everything in my life, all the different stories that have played out and the formation of this entire uh, ministry here in this college came out of faith. And, I mean, it was, it's a, quite an extraordinary tale. And this is, this is something I know that God has given me. And so I naturally recoil from such a statement like that. It's like, don't bring up something like that in a church that has faith. Because that's the type of statement that people bring up when they're disillusioned and they're sort of waffling and they're like, well, God just said no. It's like, God didn't say no, you stopped praying. Okay, you follow me? So I don't want to give a title like that in a message, lest people would start justifying their faithlessness. And so for me, this isn't a message that is going to lead towards an anti-faith at all. If anything, it's going to establish even a greater faith. But to clarify certain things, we need to walk through some rough territory here because there is a very real thing that we have in our relationship with God, and that is that God does actually say no at times. 
That's a real challenging one to get out on the table, lest someone runs off with it in the right direction. However, we're not being honest with how God works with his children if we don't just get it out there and clarify it. So a study in the fatherhood of God. So here's a quote. Ask, says God, and my answer is yes. This is, and I'm going to give you the backing for this in a whole bunch of scriptures. Ask and it shall be given you, says Jesus. And all things whatsoever you shall ask in prayer believing, you shall receive. But I know that even now whatsoever thou wilt ask of God, God will give it thee. And whatsoever you shall ask in my name, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you shall ask anything in my name, I will do it. Whatsoever you shall ask of the Father in my name, he may give it you. Whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, he will give it you. Different scripture, same statement. Hitherto have you asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. Ask, I'm ready to say yes, says God. So why in the world is Eric going to whip out something that's going to sound like a big bummer? a big wet blanket on this whole thing. I mean, why don't we just stick with this and we're fine? If any of you lack wisdom, let him ask of God that giveth to all men liberally and abradeth not, and it shall be given him. When you ask, God doesn't slap your wrist. He doesn't say, hey, I didn't say that you could ask. Actually, he said, ask. And he said, ask and it will be done. Ask and I will give it to you. Ask and you will receive. Ah, that's what it says. Okay, I'm giving you the word of God on the matter. Now unto him that is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think. So not only does he say yes, but he goes exceedingly abundantly beyond all we could ask or think, according to the power that worketh in us. Who are we asking? Of course, this is the critical dimension that we're going to begin to build on. The ask. God has said ask. I'm going to ask the question back, who are we asking? The one who asks us to ask and promises that he will answer if we do ask. So we're not just randomly asking some power out there. We're actually asking the one who asks us to ask. So in other words, God himself has said ask. So we're not asking that guy over there. We're asking the one that said, no, no, me, ask me. And when you ask me, I will give it to you. So it's not just randomly asking people out there, going up, you know, ask Barack Obama and he will give it to you. No, it says ask God. You see, we are going to the one who is actually initiated, and he's the one that came up with the idea. He said ask, and we were thinking, ask, what's that? You see, he's the one that came up with the idea. He initiated the idea, and then he gives us a promise that he will say yes, he will respond. Matthew 7. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and you shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For everyone that asks, receives. Should I read that last little comment again? For everyone that asks, receives. And he that seeks, finds. And to him that knocks, it shall be opened. Or what man is there of you whom is, if his son ask bread, will give him a stone? Or if he ask a fish, will he give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your Father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? This is a character of God issue. The character of God is under siege and under attack in our generation. Yes, it's been under attack in every generation, but the really surprising thing about our generation is it's within the church. 
a very heavy-duty movement within the church of Jesus Christ that is undermining the very nature and fabric of the one we know as Jehovah God. The scriptures are very clear about who he is, and Jesus perfectly reveals him. And what we see Jesus telling us is that he is a good father. And when you go to that father and you ask of him, he says yes, and he gives you something even better than you would even expect. So long and short, the very beginning of my message is God says yes. Don't you feel better now? And you're like, yeah, but I'm still sort of caught on the fact that you named the, t- the message when God says no. You see, Eric, that's what's sort of niggling at me still. I understand. I understand. This is, I, I should have just given a message that says God says yes and then be done right now. <laughs> and it would be a bona fide message. It would be exactly what it should be. However, that's an easy message to give. And I already forewarned you before I started that this is a very difficult message for me to give. And so what makes this d- message difficult? It's the fact that throughout Scripture, the God who is revealed is always saying yes, actually at times has said no. How do I deal with that as a man of God? How do I deal with that as a pastor? How do you deal with it as a child of God? How do we understand this and walk through this? And that's why I'm bringing this up. So does God ever say no? Moses prayed that he might enter the land of Canaan, but God said no. But God denied him and instead led him to Mount Pisgah. I don't know. Some of us go, well, that's old covenant. I mean, back in the old covenant, God could say no. God has never changed. Jehovah actually, in its very name, means the one who is always the same. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the way he behaved then is the same way he behaves now. He just is. That's what we know about God. Moses asked something, and it was a good request. He wanted to enter the land of promise. And yet God said no. God denied him and instead leads him up to the top of Mount Pisgah and says, but you can see it. Well, I don't want to see it. I want to be in it. However, Moses is a symbol of something. And what is taking place in that situation is actually a gift of grace to us. For lest we may come to the conclusion that the law can bring us into the land of promise. When it's only the second, it's Joshua, it's the one that follows, which is the same name as Jesus, that is the one that can lead us into the land of promise. It was actually for our benefit that Moses was denied. For the promise of God, known as Jesus Christ, needed to be revealed as the lone means of salvation. Moses, your request is good, but for the sake of something much more important, I need to say no. There's a man, remember the the demon-possessed man in the Gadarenes? He's sort of a spooky character. Remember, uh, the the spirits are cast out of him, and they go into pigs, and then those pigs go over the side of a hill. Yeah, this guy. The man set free by Jesus requested to go with Jesus. I don't know about you, but that's a pretty good request. Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you. See, these are the type of stories that we don't actually oftentimes see because it doesn't say that Jesus just said no, but he did. God actually declined him of a good request. That's a good request. I want to go with you, Jesus. No. What? Uh, no? 
Paul intended to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit did not permit it. And instead he heard in a dream the cries of the man from Macedonia saying, come over and help us. Now, what was Paul going to do in Bithynia? He was going to share the gospel. That's a good thing. So Paul had intentions. He was headed in a direction that even sensed God was leading him. And the Spirit of God said, no. And instead led him to Macedonia. And of course, Jesus in the garden physically yearned to have this cup pass, but he submitted to the will of the Spirit leading him to the cross. I want us to stop right here for a second, and I want us to zoom in. So let's take our camera lens, and let's zoom in on the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was in a physical body. Though he's God, he actually still has the challenges that we face. It says he was tempted in every way as we are, or were. And so Jesus actually has a challenge that is set before him. It's the commission into Jerusalem. And he knows very clearly by the Spirit of God what is going to happen to him. He is going to be turned over into the hands of sinners. He is going to be beaten, crucified, and buried. Now, I could add he'll be raised from, to newness of life on the third day. However, let's look at what we as humans would be staring at. We'd be staring at the difficulty. Jesus is seen, and it's weighing upon him. And Jesus actually makes that request, as strange as that is. Maybe this uh, cup could pass from me. But if not, God, your will be done. I want you to evaluate something here, because we're going to build on this in various stories. If God answers yes to Jesus' human longing in that situation, is it a bad thing to have Jesus linger longer on earth? Jesus could have been spared the garden scene being taken into the hands of sinners, and Jesus keeps preaching. Yeah, it'd be sort of nice, wouldn't it? And when we get even more stories of Jesus, more healings. I mean, there could be some great things that take place. Yeah, to live as Christ. To keep him alive is a wonderful thing. I mean, to live as Christ, more of Christ in this earth. But to die is gain. That principle, I want you to hold on to it. There is a time when that which seems to be better weighs before us in our human condition. And yet there is something else that God is pressing. You see, God has promised something throughout the ages, and it's in the, it's in the fullness of time that we've come. And for the sake of promise, for your sake, God said no. For your sake, for the glory of God, for a greater glory, for the love of God to be expressed into this world, he said no. What a strange thing that is. God said no to Jesus? Well, it depends on how you want to look at it. As you're going to notice throughout this message, I'm going to say, no, God said yes. You see, what we look at as a no is actually a yes to something much bigger. Corey Ten Boom, this is what's uh, been weighing on me in the process of evaluating all this, is I've been going through in depth the story of Corey and Betsy Ten Boom again, and so we finished The Hiding Place in our audiobook time at night, and then we're going through The Tramp for the Lord, which is the sequel to that. And Corey brings it up a couple times uh, that she made a very specific request of God. God, or Lord, not Germany. Don't let us be taken into Germany. They were in prison for helping the Jews in Holland. But they didn't want to be taken to Germany. Germany meant concentration camps. Germany meant being under the German rule and regime and the spiritual 
pallor of Germany was death. It was just horrifying to any Christian to even think of going to Germany. Lord, not Germany. Not Germany, Lord. And yet, they were herded onto a cattle car, and they crossed the border. And even as they're crossing the border, Corey was wrestling within. Lord, not Germany. I made my request known unto you. I asked whatsoever I would, and I said, not Germany. And yet, God took her into Germany. In Germany, Betsy was beside her. Betsy died, her sister. She ex experienced such extreme suffering in Germany. How? God, hey, hey, remember my prayer that you said that you would say yes to? And yet, in that time in Germany, Barracks 28 was transformed. Countless women came to know Jesus Christ, and Betsy herself would tell you, she's no longer alive, but when she used to travel the world, she would tell you, thank you, God, for taking me to Germany. In other words, what she could see was limited. In the human vantage point, she would say, may this cup pass. But God knew what her calling was and knew what he had designed for her. And she had submitted to that long before. God, that your glory would come forth out of this life. And it did. The young faith-filled missionary, that's a little Eric Ludy. Eric Ludy uh, was a young faith-filled missionary. In other words, I believed, and it was a genuine faith. Just like Corey Ten Boom had a genuine faith when she was praying, Lord, not Germany. I had a genuine faith, and I was going through an extreme challenge. In fact, since this came up this, this week in the, uh, the week-long training that we just did, it's very fresh in my mind when it came to this message. But I was in a situation where I had no money. And it was a series of events where God had asked me to give up my money, and as a result, now I was in a situation where I didn't have it, and yet I needed it that day. And so it was coming down to the wire. It was one of those 11.59 and 59 seconds uh, time periods where we had one more night. We, I was on a missionary team, and all our missionary team was going all over the world on missions trips, but you had to pay your final balance for the missions trip that day or that night. Uh, and so this was our final event. And so we were in Midland, Texas, and we arrived at, uh, I was put in a host home of a very, very wealthy uh, family. And so I just had it all figured out in my mind. I knew, I mean, it's like, God, you are so good. You bring me right here to a man who has, I mean, he has a runway on his property. I mean, this is great. And so obviously, I know how you're going to provide for me. This guy will be moved by your spirit, or I'll bring up something that just happens to strike him just right, and he'll say, how much money do you need, young man? <laughs> I'm like, well, the, the cost of the trip is going to be, ha, ha. and he'd be like, just whip it out. I'm like, oh, this is going to be great. And so nothing happened the whole while I was staying in his house. And so, you know, I was thinking, okay, God, you're cutting it, you know, definitely close here. But, uh, you know, at least he'll be at the event that night. So he was going to be there, and I was actually going to play a song on the piano and sing. And so I was thinking, that must be the time. I mean, I've got it figured out that this man will be listening to me sing and be like, wow, that guy's good. I bet he needs money. And so I had it all figured out, and yet, afterwards, I got done, and I got distracted with something, and I just figured that he was going to come up, hand me an envelope or something. He was gone. I remember even asking, did you see the such and such family? Yeah, they had to take off. Uh, they did say to pass on uh, how much they enjoyed spending time with you. No envelope? <laughs> no envelope. There was nothing. 
You see, I had committed to God that I was going to keep this between me and him. This is going to be a faith test. I was going to walk. Remember, I'm a young, faith-filled missionary, and I'm going to see God move. However, I had it figured out. I knew what he was going to do. So in a sense, I was like, God, through this man, through this man. And what was God saying? No. Why was he saying no? Because he didn't want to supply for me? No, because he did want to supply for me his way. I don't know if you can identify with this, but we have our stumbling blocks, which is oftentimes our immaturity of faith. Because we don't necessarily just want to trust his nature. We want to predict the form, the manner in which it's going to work. So we put our faith in the form of how God will do it, as opposed to the fact that he is faithful. He'll come through. And so I I came down to the last minute. There was one person left at the entire event. And remember, I can't ask, right? So I couldn't bring up my need. And so I'm in the parking lot. He's just about ready to get into his car. And I'm standing there on the sidewalk watching the parking lot empty. My last hope for any provision is like getting in the car and leaving. And he stops. I mean, this is amazing. He stops and he says, Eric, is there anything you need? And I said, uh, no, God, God's taken care of me. Got in the car and drove off. And I was really wondering, God, are you taking care of me? So my last hope had left. It was gone. God had said no? Or did he? You see, the key for every single one of us is when something looks like a no, it doesn't necessarily translate in the heavenly realms into a no. God knows what to answer properly to. He knows what he's up to. We don't. I come in, and I have to, stand, I have to go to my, the leader of the, the teams, and I have to sort of check in and do a final account balance and reconcile accounts, make sure if I owe anything or you know, pay the final bill, whatever it is. So I sit down across from him, and I, I'm just as uncomfortable as a, a young guy can get. I said, yeah, so sorry, I'm, I don't have it. And he goes, what, what are you talking about? I, go, I don't have the money for the trip. He's looking at the account. He goes, well, two days ago, your account was paid in full. I go, what? He goes, yeah, someone uh, donated your account two days ago. What? The whole while I'm going through this, there was a ram in the thicket. The whole while. <laughs> a young faith versus a matured faith. I'm going to go through, and we're going to contrast a young faith versus a matured faith. And by the way, they're both faith. There's nothing wrong with a young faith, but a young faith has not been discipled yet through the fullness of the nature and the attributes of how God works with his children. And so as a result, a young faith can misinterpret God's God in and through their young lens. A young faith says, God will do it this particular way. Uh I I see what he's doing. I I know, I can anticipate this up front. Uh Uh-huh, he's going to stick me in that house. Yes, he did. All right, we got it. And that guy's going to write me a check. And so we get disillusioned when the guy doesn't write a check. And yet, God is bigger than that. God, in fact, you almost get the idea that God is purposely sticking you in that house with someone who has a lot of money and not giving to you through that person so he can teach you something. So he can teach you that he is the provider. You don't put your faith in that guy, Eric. You put your faith in me. I know what you need. God loves to use the body of Christ. 
But our faith must rest in him, not in particular circumstances. And so we do this in so many different ways, not just in provision, but we do it with a lot of things. God will do it this way. The first man that Jesus healed of blindness, he just said, be healed. And so what do we do? Ah, I know what he's going to do next time. Instead, what he does next time is spit. We're like, whoa! (laughs) You see, the thing that is constant is he does it. He will do it his way, though. And that is the key thing that a matured faith begins to understand, is God will do it. Both of them, look at this. God will do it. Both the young faith and the matured faith agree in that. But the young faith says this particular way. We put our confidence in a form for how God will do it. It doesn't mean it's an incorrect faith. It's just an immature and uncompleted faith. But the matured faith says God will do it his way. And as I oftentimes have said, and he has a great sense of humor. He does. That's the one thing I could definitely state after all these years is he, oh, he knows exactly when I'm starting to function in young faith type of stuff. And I would say he almost purposely sets me up to say, Eric, are you putting your confidence in that? No, 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 God, I'm not doing that again. I don't want to get caught red-handed doing that. My confidence is in you. I mean, just this past week, I made a declaration. And I said, no, I'm not going to put my confidence in this. Because I know it's baiting me too. My confidence is in the one who rules the universe. My God is faithful. The boat filling up with water. So you're in a boat filling up with water, and you're the disciples. And guess who's in the boat with you? The creator of the heavens and the earth is right in there with you. You see, this is Christianity. And to most of us, we would say, uh, the Christian boat shouldn't fill up with water. If you're in a boat with Jesus, it shouldn't fill up with water. Isn't that a, a funny thought that we have to start with? It's like, wh- why is there water in my boat? Uh, Jesus, you're, I think you fell asleep here. You see, Jesus is asleep. Now, I still have a hunch that he was wide awake with his eyes closed. Okay, and he's doing this old number. Looking around, going... <sighs> I mean, he's in a boat filling up with water. He's the God of the universe who never sleeps, who never slumbers. Okay, I don't know exactly how to interpret this scene, but Jesus is asleep in the boat. These guys are taking buckets and like trying to dump it out. And what is their request of Jesus? Can't you just hear this? This is their prayer. Jesus, could you wake up and help us bail out the water? That's our request. That's a young faith. You see, what they see is their immediate problem. They don't see the bigger picture. And so if God was going to help them, what would he help them do? He'd he'd wake up and go, oh, what's this? Oh, no. And he'd be like, oh, yeah, let me help you here. And he'd be bailing with them. However, what does Jesus do? He says, no, I'm not going to help you bail. And they're like, what? You're not going to help us bail? Speaks to the winds and the rains and calms them. You see, his agenda is much bigger than bailing water. Our agenda is at the boat level. And oftentimes we think the no means that he doesn't care. When in actuality, he's dealing with a deeper issue. He is solving a greater riddle. And so for us to rest in his nature and not think that the particular form of rescue that he needs to bring is bailing water in our life. A young faith often genuinely believes that suffering is bad. Boats filling up with water are bad things. 
And so as a result, it says in the story that their lives were in jeopardy. And that's a bad thing to most of us. And it, most of us, we grew up, and you know, your life is in jeopardy, and we go, bad. You see, that's the natural response. You have challenge, bad. You have a trial, bad. These are bad things. And as a result, a young faith that is immature in Christianity is still reasoning through a human lens. Suffering, difficulty, trial, persecution, bad. And as a result, since we genuinely believe suffering is bad and death to be avoided at all costs, we actually reason through our circumstances in an incorrect fashion. But God, because he's a good father, doesn't necessarily just always say yes to our bailing water requests. In other words, he's still our rescuer, he's still our salvation, and he still will say yes in every situation. Oh, that he did say yes. Jesus, could you wake up and help us bail water? And even though his answer appears to be no at first, he is saying yes. He is giving them salvation. He is supplying them reprieve from their jeopardy. He knows what they need, but it's a much bigger thing that they need, they don't realize it. A matured faith genuinely believes suffering to be good. That, that, that's a hard one to swallow, isn't it? Suffering is good? Not meaningless suffering. That's not what I'm talking about. But suffering for the sake of Christ is actually one of the highest forms of expenditure of your energy in life on this earth, if not the highest. To actually endure difficulty, trial, challenge for the sake of something higher than you is actually heaven come to earth. Think about the cross. Can you think of a greater picture of the glory of God than it, a cross? What's happening on that cross? Human suffering. And yet in that picture of human suffering, we see the glory of God. So don't underestimate how the body of Christ is to be called and how in and through our difficulties, God reveals his glory. However, when you're afraid of difficulties, what are you going to do? You're going to make requests to excuse yourself from difficulty. Most of our prayers are prayers to escape crosses, to escape challenges, to escape sufferings. But that isn't how a mature Christian prays. Matured faith genuinely believes suffering to be good and death to be actual gain and victory. I know. These are challenging things, and again, I'm trying to walk through this because it doesn't mean that we just submit to anything that's happening around us and say, oh, God must want this to happen. I want you to be aggressive in holding to what God's agenda is in your life. I don't want the enemy to come in and harass you and harm you with a whole bunch of sickness, and you're like, well, it's good. In other words, I want you to be strong and able-bodied for the commission that God has given you. But I do not want you to fear and misinterpret the fact that difficulty is bad. That is where we oftentimes go astray. A young faith prays to avoid hardship, trial, imprisonment, persecution, and death. And it does this with genuine love and care. In other words, they mean it. They are actually praying for the Chinese house church to be freed from prison. That all of them would be set free. And the Chinese house church is saying, no, this is our strength. This is our weight room. This is why we're so strong. Hey, guys, don't, don't pray for our, us to be freed from persecution. We're praying for you to have it. And it does this with genuine love and care, but a love and a care that is still very ignorant. It's naive. It doesn't fully understand how the church thrives. A matured faith prays for God to supply grace 
in hardship. Triumph through sufferings. The sweet aroma of his presence in difficulty. And that a magnificent glory would usher forth out of the circumstances. It's a different angle. It's a different lens. It's like a different pair of glasses. So it doesn't actually seek to avoid difficulty, but to see God intersect difficulty and transform it into a picture of his redemptive love and power. The principle of saying no. I know this is going to sound funny at first, but no is actually a very, very good thing. There are certain situations where a no is a very bad thing, and I'm going to explain the difference. But most of us, when we hear the idea of God saying no, oh, that's terrible. Does he say no? And then it immediately creates a panic inside of us. Like, what if like, I hold to one of his promises and I stand on the rock of his word, and then he says no. He won't do that. He's even promised. You see, he, he will fulfill his promises. Those that put their confidence in him will not be put to shame. That is a fact. However, in the process of bringing a young faith unto a mature faith, he begins to acquaint us the same way from a young child unto an older child. You are discipling a child. A father has a role to begin to explain, to discipline, to chastise, and to help train a young child to see, to understand. I guarantee you, when you're young, you do not look at a discipline from a father as a good thing. And yet, as you begin to mature, you begin to realize, huh, that discipline actually correct me. Thank you, Father. In other words, your lens changes, it matures, and as a result, you embrace and cherish the disciplining of a father instead of the fact that your father, you asked for, you screamed for ice cream, and he said, whatever you ask for, oh, little child, I am at your beck and call. That is not good parenting. So the principle of saying no, it's an expression of love, respect, and priority. So one of the first things, it was actually the very first class out of the entire practicum, uh, we were going through Christianity basically made practical, and it was the principle of saying no. That's like how we started. So uh, you guys, all the practicum students in here should be experts on this already. But long and short, this is a base principle in my life. I say no all the time. Because my saying no is in order that I may say yes to the things that God has assigned me. You see, if I say yes to everything, I know yes sounds very spiritual. But if I say yes to everything, do you know that I'm saying no to other things? Every yes is a no to something else. That's why a no is actually a yes to something. So, like, for instance, I have priorities. I have time with God that is always a priority in my life. I have time with my wife, which is always a priority. I have time with my kids, which is always a priority. And then I have a very specific commission here that I've committed to, and that's you guys. I get asked to speak all over the world all the time. No. No, no, can't do that. No, 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 no. You could make a song. No, no, no. <laughs> now, I speak about three to four times a year. And so I do say yes every now and then. And even that, the executive staff is always sort of like, did you say yes? You see, my yes is actually a no to my executive staff. I'm suddenly just gone. And it's usually right when I should be here. In other words, I know that, unless they're sort of like, are you leaving town this week? Yeah, I said yes. <gasps> By saying yes to something, I said no to something else. And so as a result, the discipline of saying no is actually one of the hardest things, because I'm a, I'm a yes man. I'm one of those guys that wants everyone to like me. And so going through high school, college, early ministry, it's like, yes, I'll, I'll help you with that. Yes, 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 yes. 
and now I'm a no man. Uh, no, 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 no. But as a result of that, I'm able to say yes to why I'm here on earth. So I want you to understand the principle of a no is actually love. My no is actually because I love my God, I love my wife, I love my kids, and I love you guys. See, you can't argue that one, can you? It's like, keep saying no. However, it is a discipline of soul. And when you begin to have that framework for how no's and yeses work, you begin to realize, wait a minute, this might not even be a bad thing. There are bad no's, and that's what we also need to clarify. See, there's two different kinds of no's. There are bad no's and good no's. You see, what I was just describing, those are good no's. Those are the right motive no's. Those are loving no's. In other words, I'm not just being rude to someone out there who's like, hey, are, are you Eric Ludi? I'm like, uh, yes. Uh, could you come speak? I'm like, not on your life. <laughs> yeah, that would probably be a bad no, okay? So there's the capricious no and the loving no. The capricious no is just random. And this is like the classic thing that we as parents have struggled with over time. And I'll take the full brunt of it. I'm, I'm going to get you off the hook. I'm sure you never did this. But there are those moments where your kids are just, they've officially gotten under your skin. Somehow they reach that point, and then right at that juncture, they ask for a cookie or something like that. Now, this, the no actually has nothing to do with the cookie. It has more to do with just sort of your frustration. And you say something like, no. And then the child's like, why not? Mama always lets us have a cookie. <laughs> because daddy said so. That's a capricious no. It has no basis in logic. It has no reason. It has no help to the child. But it's a human sort of capricious no. You see, God is not capricious, and he doesn't say no like that. So as a result, our concept of God saying no is the first one. You need to rule that one out because it's not even in God's dialect. God does not just randomly choose to say no because he's in a bad mood. God is his yes and his no are always his yes and his no. So if he gives a no, he would give that no in any situation to anyone who asked. In other words, it's just God. God knows what is best. He knows his truth. And as a result, he is very stable in his yeses and his noes. And then you have the loving no. The no that comes out of the right motive to say, you know, can I eat this poison-drenched cookie, daddy? No. Oh, how rude is that, that a dad would just say no? No, why would I say no? Because that would kill you. And I want you to live. So then the same two, but the random no, is the way that many of us feel that it functions in our life with God. It's like God just sort of wakes up one day, he's like, no, yes, no, 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 yes, yes. And he has an equal amount of yeses and nos. And so you just happen to fall into the cracks that day and got one of the nos. It isn't how God works. And then you have the rock-like no, the no that is unchanging. In other words, God is. And so therefore, the way that he handles his children is consistent. In other words, if I'm going to discipline one of my children for rolling their eyes, I need to discipline my other one for rolling their eyes. That's the way God is with his yeses and his no's. In other words, he gives a yes and amen to those that are in Christ for all the promises of God. However, when someone is asking to spend something on their flesh, he says, no. You see, he's a good father, and he'll give that same no to any of his children. The loving no. 
the no that a good father gives. Four sorts of loving no's. So the first one is the no that is given in order that a yes might be supplied. And this is what I was just talking about, that when you say no out of the loving motive, it's so that you can say yes. And so in actuality, in the kingdom of heaven, God's no's are actually not no's, as you would suppose. His no's are actually yeses. But they are cloaked yeses to our understanding because we don't fully see. So a yes, it's a yes to something that is exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think. See, what's our problem? Our asking and our thinking are pretty small. We're asking Jesus to wake up and bail water. And he's saying no. But he's actually saying yes. He's responding because our core, our core request was Jesus save me. You see, his nature is to save. And he is doing that. He is saying yes. But he's saying no to the specific request we're making so that he can say yes to calming the winds and the waves and to settling the entire problem that we're having that's putting water in the boat in the first place. So do you remember Israel's cry for deliverance from the Romans? So you have the Roman Empire that has totally swallowed up Israel, and Israel is under their thumb. And so you have a Roman centurion just like at every street corner. And what did they expect their Messiah to do? To come in and deliver them from the Romans. You see, what was their request? Deliver us! Set us free from the Romans. Did, well, how did he respond to that? No, but with a yes. You see, his yes was far greater. They're asking him to bail water out of a boat. Jesus is coming to save them from their sins, from the power of the flesh over them, from the control of the devil. The Romans are small potatoes here, people. It's just water in a boat. God's seeming no to the Jews was a greater yes. The no that is given in order that a yes might be declared to a superior request. In other words, God is doing something so much greater, and there are greater requests that are on the table. God has a request that we could say is hanging out in the nation of Israel, which isn't yet fully a nation. It's Jacob and his 12 sons. Now 11, because as far as anyone knows, Joseph is dead. However, in the meantime, Joseph is in a deep pit. Joseph is forgotten. Joseph has no one noticing his needs and his circumstances. Here he has lived a perfect life, a a pure life, and there he is in in a prison cell. It's a picture of Jesus Christ. And there's a request that's saying, please deliver your people. Deliver those that are in a covenant bond with you, O God. Meanwhile, Joseph has a prayer. Could you imagine him talking to God and saying, God, could you remind that cupbearer to tell Pharaoh about my amazing abilities and the fact that I'm down here in this hellhole and I shouldn't be? I'm a good guy. Could you have him pass that along? And yet what appears to be a no, God's saying no. Is, Is it because God is actually declining Joseph's request? Does God not care about Joseph? God is doing something so much bigger. And you know what? There was a perfect timing. You see, once Pharaoh had a dream, then Pharaoh was ready to see the merits of what this young boy has to offer. There was a perfect timing. And if God had answered that prayer of Joseph's too early, Joseph would not be second in command of the most powerful nation on earth. But instead, he was in that grave for just the perfect length of time so that that resurrection 
was all the higher. The no that is given in order that a greater love might be expressed. God says no to Jesus Christ in order that a greater love may be expressed. And one of the things you're going to notice about all the no's in Scripture is it's because God is concerned about someone. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. What motivates God? Love. And so as a result, for a greater expression of love, for a greater reach of love, for a greater impact of love, son, I know how hard this is for you, but you're going to have to trust me right now. Things are going to go really dark, but you need to trust me. What looks like a no is a big yes to fallen humanity. The no that is given in order that a greater glory might be revealed. Uh, this is just an awkward story. I don't know how else to describe it. Jesus heals everyone that comes to him. I mean, the whole New Testament, I mean, it's just, and all that came to him, he healed. He has three close friends. You don't know about a lot of Jesus' close friends. You know about the disciples, and you know about Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And he seemed to be very close with them. They were his friends. And Lazarus is sick. Can't you just see the request? So, uh, Jesus, you know how you like healed everyone else? Could you heal Lazarus, my brother? Then how about Lazarus? It's like, you know, I don't want to inconvenience you, but I was just thinking, you know, anyone that comes to you throughout all of, you know, that your life has been healed, and so I'm just here. Here thinking maybe you could uh, heal me. No. No, he didn't say no. He just said this sickness will not end in death. Classic God. Silence, and he leaves town. He leaves town. Could you imagine what Mary and Martha and Lazarus were going through as Lazarus is still sick and then dies? How do we deal with this? You see, what looks like a no is actually, even in the definition, in this story, it's for a greater glory. God is saying yes, but at a much greater level. You see, if he just gave to Lazarus, Mary, and Martha precisely what they were asking for, he would have robbed them and us of a greater picture of his glory. Because God is after something much bigger than just bailing water out of a boat, we have to trust the way he works with us as a father because he says, look, I'm calling you my sons and daughters. I need you to begin to function in agreement with my family, the way my kingdom works, I don't just come down and I'm just doing what you need done. You are coming and joining me in what I'm doing. And when you ask me in accordance with what I'm doing, it's done. If you ask me to do something that is slightly different than what I'm about, I'm going to convert that request of faith into what I'm doing. The good father, introducing the watchmaker and his daughter. This is going back to Corey Tenboom. Casper uh, Tenboom was his name. That's Corey Tenboom's father. Truly an amazing man. I want to be like Casper Tenboom. A man that would literally give up his life to save this, the persecuted ones in his time period, literally go and suffer gladly, too. I, the, the man is truly a, a miracle man, a marvelous man. So, Corey Tenboom is re- referencing back in the book, The Hiding Place, to her relationship with her father when she's young. And so she's on a train. She would go back and forth to work with her dad. And her dad would always carry a big, heavy case with all his watch parts in it. 
And uh, he, he was just a, a man that was you know, perfectly on time. He was a watchmaker, and so everything was exact and on time. So they always knew exactly when they would be there, 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 there. And so they're on the bus or the tram or the train or the uh, whatever transportation device they were on. I, I don't remember that part. And Corey and him had been ministering to someone, and someone had brought up one of those dimensions of life that young kids usually don't know anything about, okay? And they had used some salty sort of language that had elicited a thought in Corey's mind about, what's that? And it's one of those things that every parent is like, please don't ask uh, that question. That's awkward. How in the world am I going to explain that? And sure enough, when they're on the bus, Corey says, Papa, what's hana hana hana? And Casper Tenboom didn't respond. He sat there, and Corey was sort of wondering if he heard. Did he hear the question? And then as they pulled up to their stop, uh, he turns to Corey and says, Corey, would you mind picking up my uh, suitcase uh, <clears throat> and carrying it for me? And she says, sure, Father. She comes over, and <clears throat> she can't pick it up. And, he, and she goes, I can't pick it up, Father. And he goes, I know. You see, there are certain things that are too heavy for you right now. And what you asked is too heavy for you. And only Father can carry that right now. But you need to trust that in due time, when you're ready to understand it, I will share with, that, share with you what that is. But for now, could you allow your Father in heaven to carry that for you? Do you trust me? I do, Father. You see, there's something about that that registers with me in a beautiful way. And when you're a father, I mean, first of all, when I heard that story, I was like, oh, that was a good one. Uh, <laughs> But it is true as well that there are certain things that we are not ready to comprehend yet. You see, in that, in that suitcase, there are a whole bunch of watch parts. And if, he, if I dumped them out for you and said, okay, guys, let's make some watches, what are you missing? The knowledge of how watches are even made. You see, if, if I give you a watch, do you have to know the mechanics of a watch to be able to trust it? You have to know all the intricacies of how it all interrelates to be able to trust that it's giving you the right time. No, you trust the watchmaker. And so since God is the watchmaker and he's given us the revelation of his word, which is showing us the truth, there are going to be certain things that we don't yet understand. But we need to know that the one who made it is perfect. And it tells perfect time and what it is declaring to us is right. So you don't need to know precisely how it works mechanically to believe its message. That's what I think is amazing about this particular suitcase. It's full of watch parts. That if we were just given that suitcase to carry, we couldn't. Or to utilize the parts within it, we couldn't. But Corey Tenboom became a watchmaker, one of the best in Holland. You see, she was trained and she went from a young faith to a mature faith to the point where she could actually pick up that suitcase and she could actually open that suitcase and take those individual parts and find their location. That's what God grows us up to. Whatever stage in the journey we are on, we need to trust that God's apparent no is not actually a no as we would presume. It's not a capricious no. It's not a random no. If he seems to still be asleep, and your boat is filling up with water, you can rest assured he still is your salvation. You can trust him because the clock is saying he's on time. He's on time. I don't know, that 11.59 and 59 seconds, so he loves that particular time. The suitcase full of watch parts. 
So here we are in the book of Acts. There's a character, a prophet, who comes up a couple times in the book of Acts named Agabus. And this is the arrival of Agabus and the great challenge to the body. There's a reason why this particular message is a challenge, and it's ironically, you're going to see it even in the book of Acts. When we had cited Cyprus, so Luke is writing the book of Acts, so the we is including Luke and their, their traveling party, but basically he's with Paul. So Paul is our key character in the, this series of events. And as we go through this, I want you just for a second to transfer Paul and Christ. Just sort of exchange them out. Okay, so here's a young buck of the faith who's traveling with Jesus on his missionary journeys. Okay, this is like Christianity. When we had sighted Cyprus, we passed it on the left, sailed to Syria, and landed at Tyre. For there the ship was to unload her cargo, and finding disciples, we stayed there seven days. So they found disciples there in Tyre, and we stayed with them seven days, and they told Paul through the Spirit. So how did they tell Paul? Through the Spirit, not to go up to Jerusalem. Now, the next verse, on the next day, we who were Paul's companions departed and came to Caesarea and entered the house of Philip the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. Now this man had four virgin daughters who prophesied. I decided to keep that line in just to make you guys squirm a little. Uh, and as we stayed many days, a certain prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. When he had come to us, he took Paul's belt, bound his own hands and feet, and said, thus says the Holy Spirit. So who's speaking? The Holy Spirit. So shall the Jews at Jerusalem bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. Okay, so now twice there were fellow disciples in Tyre that said, by the Spirit, they're saying, you should not go to Jerusalem. Agabus shows up takes Paul's belt, ties himself with it, and says, so will be done to the man who owns this belt in Jerusalem. Now, when we heard these things, both we and those from that place, and by the way, there's some important people there. We got Philip and his four daughters that prophesy. Do I need to mention that again to you? Uh, we have uh, Luke and any other traveling uh, compadres. I mean, there's some big names here. And what are they doing? Now, when we heard these things, both we and those from that place pleaded with him not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what do you mean by weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die at Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. So when he would not be persuaded, we ceased saying, we ceased saying, the will of the Lord be done. So I don't know if you see the dynamic here. You have the Spirit of God literally saying, you go to Jerusalem, you're going to be bound. Now, what's funny is it doesn't actually, Agabus doesn't come in and say, you shouldn't go to Jerusalem. He says, this is what's going to happen when you do. Do you remember when Jesus said that he needed to go to Jerusalem, and when he did, he was going to be turned into the hands of sinners and be crucified? And you remember Peter? No! No, no! And what does Jesus say? Get thee behind me, Satan. In other words, our human sensibilities, our human framework, oftentimes make a request of Jesus. No, no, we can't as the church go towards Jerusalem because we already know that we would be tied and bound. However, the spirit of Christ in Paul 
sees that, yes, to live is Christ. To wander the earth sharing about Jesus is wonderful, but to die is gain. Paul is not intimidated. Paul is exhibiting something that many of us struggle with. Many of us, when we hear about any suffering in the body, what do we want? We want to stamp it out. No suffering. We should never suffer as the body of Christ. There should be no trials, no difficulties. Is that what the New Testament says? Actually, it says the opposite. Do not consider it strange, my brethren, when you face trials. I mean, this is just the normal stuff that comes. In fact, consider it pure joy. This is what we live off. This is our exercise equipment. This is what makes us strong. This is the means through which God reveals his glory. Do not be afraid of these things. But in the midst of this, know that God holds the situation in the hollow of his hand. Look at what they finally decided to say. The will of the Lord be done. You see, Paul's answer back to them was, no, guys, I'm going. What? You can't, Paul. You see, what looks at first blush as to, a, to the young faith, it looks like certain destruction. It looks like it's veering off course. Jesus, to go to the cross? Don't do it, Jesus. We need you. You're the Messiah. Mm-hmm. He is not afraid of suffering. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. He was willing that his son would suffer. He was pleased to see him bruised, that we would be gained. Do you not realize that he is pleased to have his body go through challenges? That through that, through those challenges, his glory would be made manifest. This we know. So in the midst of some of these challenging tensions that I'm bringing up, and probably the thousand questions that may be spurting out of you. There's certain things we know. Our God cannot lie. He will not change. He is the same forever. And he is eager to answer. You know the one that we are coming to in prayer? Cannot lie. So when you see his word and it speaks, it's true. And he will not change. So even though it was true 2,000 years ago, it still is true today. And it will forever be true. He is eager to answer? What an amazing feature of our God. He is eager to answer. Jesus, I need help bailing out my boat. He's eager to answer. But how he answers may be different than what you initially expect. But is he answering? Of course. Anyone who asks will receive. You see, this is the principle of the kingdom of heaven. You ask, he will come through. The fact that he is going above and beyond, exceedingly abundantly beyond all you could ask or think is just because of his nature. You see, you were asking for something so diddly squat, what he's doing is something much more great and grand. Will you let him be great and grand in your life? He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. That means when you seek him, he will be found. He is inclined towards your benefit. This cannot change. He is forever this way. So therefore, he's not going to change on you. Though the situation might seem silent, might seem dark, you can trust the nature of your God in the midst of it. He is a good father, and he gives good gifts to his children. You ask him for a fish, he's not going to hand you a stone. He's actually saying yes, but you have to trust him when at first all you're hearing is no. He works all things for good to them that love him and are called according to his purpose. 
That means that no matter what you face, no matter what challenge, no matter what trial you endure, all of this is being turned into your strength. The dark night of the soul, when the soul seems really dark. Oftentimes, in Christian history, this challenge that many of us have run into, where all has gone black, and God seems silent, and you have a challenge in your life that is staring you down, and you're struggling in those moments. You're struggling with your reasoning because the enemy is really loud, and he's saying, God has failed you. God has forgotten you. God is sleeping. Whatever it is. You're hearing that loud and you're not hearing the word of God clearly. In that dark night, it is very important that you reach out and grab something. Jacob grabbed the man of God who actually is revealed in scripture as God. He grabbed God. What you need to grab is not just the text of scripture, but the God of scripture. The text of scripture is wonderful and I want you to grab it. So I'm not trying to say don't. However, the text of Scripture is only there to reveal to you the man of Scripture, Jesus Christ. So when you're going through your dark nights, I want you to reach out and I want you to grab the one who is faithful and true. The one who will never leave you nor forsake you. The one who is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. The one who will turn all things for good to those who love him. He is the one you grab a hold of. And he will prove faithful. And even though it appears that he's asleep in the boat, he knows your needs and he knows them well. The interpreter of dreams. That's the concept of Joseph in the Old Testament. Of course, Daniel was an interpreter of dreams. To take that which is mysterious and bring clarity to it. You see, the Old Testament is like a dream. It is, it is confusing. It really is. Even to the Jewish rabbis, they didn't understand it. Who's it speaking of? Who is this that it is referring to? However, we on the other side of the covenants actually, in and through the life of Jesus, are able to stick Jesus like a key into the lock of all those scriptures and interpret it. And we see, speaking of Jesus, that was speaking of Jesus, that was speaking of Jesus. Okay, so, for those of you that hang out at Ellerslie, you know that. It's called a hermeneutic, how we handle scripture. You know that Jesus is the key that unlocks it. He's the key, he's the interpretive device to every challenge you face. Just stick him in the lock. And you know what you find? You realize the secret that even though it appears to be a no, and even though you're enduring suffering, and even though you're going through a trial, a difficulty, do you know what's on the far side of that trial? Do you know where the Spirit of God is beckoning? you know where he walks his children through? He will walk us through a Gethsemane. He will walk us through a Calvary. But what is on the far side? A resurrection from the dead. The darkness will not remain forever. So though things seem bleak in the moment, do you not know the interpreter of this dream, this sound, this confusion? God oversees it all. So therefore, even though it appears to be a no to your request, God, let me avoid this suffering. Let me not go through another trial. I don't know that I can handle it. He says, I know what you can handle, son, oh daughter. I will only test you to the point you can bear, but I must test you, for I want to bring you life. Some of us are still asking for him to bail out our boat, but God has bigger fish that he's frying in our life right now. He's building us into pictures of his grace, conforming us into his image, and he's a good father. He has a vision. My children may have a little small vision for their life because they're children, 
It's my job to be the keeper of the vision and to say, no, no, no. We're going to see you built up into men and women of God. And soon they begin to take on that vision. Same with us. You can't carry that big suitcase yet, maybe. But will you let him carry it until you are? Until you're able to see these things, don't question the character of God. You must trust your father even when things remain dark for you. Jesus is the key that unlocks every mystery. Grabbing a hold of the promiser and not letting go. Here's a great quote that I love to quote. Jacob wrestled not so much with a promise as with the promiser. You see, we oftentimes will grab a hold of a form or a method. And God's saying, grab a hold of me. Grab a hold of me because I'm the one that the whole map, the whole scriptures point to. I'm the treasure. The two-sided ticket. After much prayer, the answer comes. So I, I just uh, picked up Leslie from the airport a couple days ago, and you pull up to that parking lot area, and it's a uh, printing ticket, please wait, and out comes this little ticket. It's sort of like that. You pray, and you arrive in sort of that prayer depot, the presence of God, the throne room of grace, and there's always a response. Anyone who asks will receive. And so what did you receive? You received a ticket. It's like, huh? And yet some of our tickets, we're, we're a little confused over it, we're sort of looking around because this person's like, he said yes, he said yes. We're looking at ours going, what? N-O? What? What? And then this other person jumps up, he said yes. And we're like, what? What is this? So many have received an answer back from heaven in ticket form that reads, <clears throat> no. Some have received the same ticket, but it was blank, silent mum in response. Like, what did you get? Mine's blank. What do you think that means? <laughs> and then you got the guy over here going, he said yes. <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> because of the lack of discipleship in the church, many have been wrecked in their faith due to this ticket. Because the heritage of the saints has been lost to many of us. You see, you're supposed to inherit something. You're supposed to inherit an understanding of that ticket. When you first receive that ticket, you're supposed to have someone standing right by you saying, what'd you get? It says, it says no. And then they start getting excited. In fact, they start laughing out loud. You got a two-sided ticket. You got a two-sided ticket. You're like, my ticket says no. You've never been taught this, have you? You see, if your ticket says no, that actually is what's called a two-sided ticket. So for lack of discipleship in the church, many have been wrecked in their faith due to this ticket. They couldn't comprehend a no from God, especially when he promises a yes. The church of generations past are very familiar with the two-sided ticket and have historically cherished the no because they know that it is evidence that they have, in fact, received uh, the much uh, longed for and, and uh, excitable two-sided ticket. The two-sided ticket is to be cherished above all other answers. Oh, I got a two-sided one. What does yours say? No. <laughs> What's wrong with this guy? You get all these people going, hey, I got yes. And you're like, I got no. <laughs> but what you really got was a two-sided ticket. No is just the first part. For a two-sided ticket offers, guess what, another side. The no is merely the hint. Psst, hey, no means 
turn over. To turn the ticket over. On the other side is God's affectionate fatherly paragraph, beloved by all the suffering saints before us. I know you submitted a request that he would bail water for you, that he would get all this water out of your boat. And yet, what did you get back? You got to know. And what does the person next to you say that is a matured saint? They say, <laughs> I, that's enviable. You, you just got yourself a two-sided one. You're like, what? Gotta, he's not going to help me? No, 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 that's not what it's saying. I know it looks like that. Flip it over. It's a two-sided ticket. There's a paragraph on the back. I don't know how he fits it all on the ticket, but he did. He, he fits it on the ticket. It's a paragraph. It's what we could call the God's affectionate fatherly paragraph. So I'm going to read it to you. Now, this is my rendition of it. His rendition is much better, okay? It's the entire Bible. (laughs) Dear precious child, I've taken it upon myself to direct your investment of faith into something very special. It's a yes of heavenly proportions and one that is sure to make your heart swell with excitement as well as cause the glory of God to increase in this earth. Since I'm all wise, all knowing, and I understand all things, I've seen fit to say no to your initial request that I might give you this yes instead. For this yes will express my love, power, and grace toward you and through you in even greater measure. Thank you for trusting me implicitly, your Heavenly Father. A two-sided ticket. Now, when any of you start grumbling and moaning about a no, and by the way, if yours is blank, that's that's very exciting too. That's a two-sided ticket. It's just of a different variety. There's another side. There's a heavenly paragraph on the other side. The superintending spirit. We groan in the earthly tongue. He translates into the heavenly tongue. So what we see in Romans 8, which we went through a message called, uh, what was that called? Michelangelo's workshop. And it went through this, Romans 8, 26, very specifically. Likewise, the spirit also helps in our weaknesses. For we do not know what we should pray for as we ought. You know, especially as you've gotten a few no's back, you begin to realize, it's like, you know, I don't think I really know how this works. I keep asking for him to bail water, and he's calming storms. I don't actually know what to pray. And so, for we do not know what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. The word for intercession is a word called huper entuchano, and it actually is a beautiful word because Jesus in scriptures revealed to entuchano, which means to intercede for us. But the spirit, huper entuchanos, the, the word would be hyper, above. It's above and beyond, but it actually is like superintending. So the picture I gave when I gave Michelangelo's workshop is my child comes up to putt-putt. And without daddy's help, the ball usually goes awry into a bush or someone else's putt-putt green. And so daddy comes over because they say, could you please help me, daddy? And so I reach over, I fix their grip, and I grab their hands. And I say, you ready? All right, here we go. Boom. And daddy, hooper and tucanos. I overshadow the process, and boom. If The Holy Spirit's a lot better than daddy. He's a hole in one every time. But whose scorecard does it go on? The child's. In other words, this is how Christianity works. We don't know what to pray, but as we begin to mature in our relationship with God, we say, Spirit of God, overshadow. I have a groan. I know I need to be saved from this drowning situation. My boat is sinking. However, one thing I've learned is that I come to an immediate conclusion that you want to bail water. But I'm starting to get wise here. 
I'm realizing that you have a solution. You already know my circumstances, and you're going to turn this situation into a picture of your grace. So I am going to submit to you and say, God, you do it. You come through to the best I know. I'm going to say, could you bail water for me? Because that's the best I know, but could you take this earthly groan of human condition and could you translate it into the heavenly realms, into your tongue? And he does. The Spirit will translate that faith-filled groan. It may not be perfect. It may not be exactly accurate, but if you trust your God, he takes that faith-filled groan and translates it into calming the winds and the waves in your life. You want him to wipe out the Roman Empire, to set Israel free. He wants to remove the sins in a land in one day. He is frying bigger fish. We must trust that he will do it. Remember, a no from God is just his way of saying yes to something exceedingly abundantly beyond all you could ask or think. That may not solve every question. The human groan is always going to say, God, bail me out. But the spirit groan sees the bigger picture. And we are submitting to the spirit groan within us. We recognize that our prayers do not hit the hole in one. His do. And though our praying be imperfect, God converts our prayers, our limited prayers, into a greater picture of his glory when we simply pray. Pray. Our job is to agree with him and say, you're the one that does it. So I'm going to pray to the best I know. But I'm going to trust that you will do to the best that you do. And he always does. For his nature has never changed. He is still a savior. And he ever lives to make intercession for us. Praise God for that. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.